It was about 14 years ago, I was a professor in Nyack at the time, and a group of students from the seminary and the college wanted to have a day of revival prayer. So they picked a Saturday in April, and they turned the soccer pitch into a sanctuary. A couple hundred students were together, but the April weather didn't cooperate. It was bitter cold. And we fought to worship. Even though the word was spoken and there was exciting singing, it was just so cold. And then the thing happened that just pushed us over the top. We were getting ready to celebrate communion, and one of the students was an artist. And while we'd been worshiping for about five hours, she'd been painting this big portrait, and she turned it around, and it was a picture of a lion. And immediately, we're face-to-face with the Lion of Judah. Image started to open us up. And then communion was brought in, and I've never seen communion done like this. Students danced with flags, and they had eight-foot-long loaves of bread on the top of their head and big bowls of juice that were swashing as they came in. It was a graphic image of the bounty of what God had done for us. I went from communion where I was inward and fighting the cold to this expression of the glory of God. This is what will transform us in life. Not right belief, not right behavior, but beholding the glory of God. In today's passages, we see two robes. We're in this series, Robes in the Bible, as we're moving through Lent, coming to crucifixion and resurrection. Isaiah sees the picture of a robe that changes everything about his existence. This is when his life really began. This is when he came alive. And so we need to take a closer look at this passage so that our lives would be alive as we move closer to cross and resurrection. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah begins by describing what had happened to him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah is connecting two things heaven and earth. You're going to see it through this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's what's going on on earth, I saw the Lord. Completely different structures going on here. Um, We could start in the year that George Washington died, I saw the Lord on the throne. In the year that John Adams died, I saw the Lord on the throne. In the year that Thomas Jefferson died, I saw the Lord on the throne. Let's just fast forward because I don't remember the fourth president. (laughs) In the year that Ronald Reagan died, and keep coming up. You see, everybody's fixed on things on the earth, and Isaiah's saying there's a reality that's far more significant. And he puts it almost into a Hebrew step parallelism. Earth, in the year that King Uzziah died, heaven, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. Heaven once again, high and lifted up, but the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is saying, we may look at things and think we have a sense of reality. That's text in our life, but there's a subtext of God telling a story. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's like Paul saying, uh, what is seen is transient and what is unseen is eternal. See, throne of the people of God and temple were to be a reflection of what God was doing. 
It went well for the kings when they were connected to the heavenly king. It went well in the temple when the temple was filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah got to see the robe of the Lord. Uh, I've all week long tried to imagine. I've come in here and I've looked at the cross and tried to see and imagine. You can't get there. God has to make it happen for you. He needs to release it. There's this moment. Heaven's skies are poured open, or heaven's uh, window is pulled open, and Isaiah gets a picture of what God's doing. He sees these angels. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, this is the only time seraphim are mentioned in the Bible. We've created very interesting theologies around seraphim. What we really do know is that they worship God. And even in this moment, they're finding it difficult to get close to God. They cover their eyes because of the holiness of God. And once again, we're connecting heaven and earth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It's antiphonal praise. It would be like you angels up here going, holy, holy, holy. And you responding over here, is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's kind of like a wave at a stadium. The place is going crazy. Because when you experience the glory and the holiness of God, you just can't be calm in those moments. Isaiah goes on and says this, It was so bold that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. You see, because God is spirit, He needs to manifest to us. You never know when He's going to do it, but when He does it, you know it. I see it happen here. I see you running for tissue boxes. God's release. There's moments in our worship. I don't know if you noticed it this morning. We sang that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. I think I've probably sung that 8,433 times. (laughs) I've been at Stanwich for 10 years, so that means I've probably sung it 46 times. It's not one of my favorites. I've sung it so many times that I can very easily tune out, but something happened today. We were so transfixed with the presence of God that God's glory started to respond to our worship. His glory was filling the temple. You just never know. In this morning's children's church, one of the kids started looking up to heaven. We're thinking, this is the moment. You never know when God's going to do it, but you know it. You know it. You know it because something happens inside of you. You know what it's called? It's beholding. We will not survive spiritually. We will not advance if we do not behold. If we try to contain everything in our beliefs and we try to work out our own behavior all the time, we're going to be people who run out of gas. We need to behold the glory of God. That's why this season is so pregnant in people's life change because there's something happening. Whatever reason, I don't get it, God loves to come here and manifest His presence. And when He does, we behold Him and things begin opening up for us. Watch what happens to Isaiah, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal 
that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. When you come into a revelation of the holiness and glory of God, it requires a response. You have to respond. There's something in you. And in this moment, Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the king. Now remember, the angels he's just depicted cannot look at the king. Isaiah has seen the king, and it's simply the robe, the train of his robe that's in the temple, and he's undone. Three words, woe, lost, and unclean lips. I guess that's four words. He becomes aware of his sin. When you see God for who he really is, what you immediately have is this sense of woe because you do not match up in any way. There's no comparison for Isaiah now. He's not walking in. I'm the prophet. Look at all of these sinners. Basically, he's caught up with the corporate nature of his sin. I have unclean lips and I'm among a people of unclean lips. There's no righteousness. You compare yourself to someone else all you want, but when you come face to face with God, all of a sudden you are undone. He's undone. We advance expect the words of Romans which say there is no one who is righteous. Even Isaiah will say eventually in his own prophecy to the people, all of your efforts to be righteousness are just like filthy rags before God. He's consumed when he meets a holy God with his own sinful nature. Now, let me just take the preaching hat off for a minute and become your teacher for a little bit. Sin is no longer a popular concept in our culture. I don't know how many of you have read uh, David Brooks' book, The Road to Character. I highly recommend this. Uh, he writes for the New York Times, so you probably want to listen to this. Even if you don't want to listen to the pastor, he's a pretty smart guy. He writes for the New York Times. This is what he says. Today, the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. It's used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts. I sinned multiple times last night. <laughs> most people in daily conversation don't talk much about individual sin. If they talk about human evil at all, that evil is most often located in the structures of society in inequality, oppression, racism, and so on, not in the human breast. We've abandoned the concept of sin first because we've left behind the depraved view of human nature. We are in a society through secularism that's saying you're basically good. If you just get the right education, you'll be okay. That is one of the worst lies that we've ever been told. Sin is a necessary piece of our mental furniture because it reminds us that life is a moral affair. No matter how hard we strive to replace sin with non-moral words like mistake or error or weakness, the most essential parts of life are matters of individual responsibility and moral choice. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like error or insensitivity or tries to banish words like virtue, character, evil, and vice altogether, that doesn't make life any less moral. It just means we have obscured the inescapable moral core of life with shallow language. 
I don't know how many of you saw his op-ed on Friday, but he talks about we are a society that's carrying great guilt, and because we have no religious framework to hang it on, all we do now is go to become victims and blame. See, seeing God for who He is makes us aware of our sinfulness, but what God does is He doesn't leave us there. I imagine, as Nathan did Wednesday night in our Bible study, that Isaiah is on his face before the Lord because he can't take the holiness of God, and the angel is the one who initiates, who goes to the altar and takes a coal from the fire, that very place where sacrifice, blood had been dripping there for years, and that coal is brought to him, and he puts it on his lips, and I find it very interesting that the angel says, I've put the coal on your lips. Isaiah didn't need to hear that. Why is he telling him that? He's telling him that because being aware of his sin is for his good because God's about to do something for it. He takes away the outward sin on his lips, but he also takes care of his guilt and he tones for him in that space. Fleming Rutledge, I could read you dozens of quotes from her now on what's the prospect of sin in our life, but she's done this one that really helps us to understand our struggle where we're at today, is we tend to think of sins as the acts that we've done. So when we think about our life, we think about if I can just correct those little things and I I feel bad about the things I've done, she goes on to say sin, little s, or sins is not our problem. Our big problem is sin, capital S. It's the condition that wars within our hearts. We are people that are born in sin. There's a power, there's a dominion that's set up against us. We need liberated from it. And it's only in seeing a holy God that we have the possibility of being liberated. If we do not see a holy God, we will be tempted to compare ourselves to other people. Of course, I don't sin as much as Richard Williams. (laughs) That's where you're supposed to give me a good amen. (laughs) Richard's going, I can't believe I came to the morning service. I should have stayed at the gathering. See, that can't happen to us. We need to look at ourselves in light of a holy God. The problem in our society is that we've brought God down to our level. We've made God our friend. We negotiate with God. We tell God we don't like the things where he's politically incorrect in his Bible. Who are we to say that to God? God in his holiness, we should just be cringing right now. But what God does is he comes and picks us up, and with his holiness, he transforms us and makes us pure. See, Beholding leads to believing, and you start believing the right things. Our society is saying, if you get enough self-help, you'll be able to rescue yourself. If you get enough education, you'll make it. If you get the right opportunities, you'll be there. That's not the right stuff to believe. I need to know that I'm bankrupt without God, but with God, everything changes in my life. Immediately after that, after beholding God and believing what he's supposed to believe, he's now able to behave. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. You see, once you've experienced good news, you can't keep it to yourself. You have to go tell someone. We sang it this morning, the anthem of the Lord's renown. The only way there's going to be an anthem of the Lord's renown is when the people that have redeemed, who know their sinfulness, have been rescued by God and picked up by Him, go out and tell the world there's a way that they can escape their sinful condition. We need to introduce them to the holy God and what He wants to do for them.
So this passage is interesting. Here we see this picture of the train of the robe of God transferring, transforming Isaiah seven centuries plus, 735, 736 B.C. When I think of that passage, my tendency is to think that is the robe of Father God, the Elohim or Yahweh of the Hebrew Scriptures. But John says something in passing in John 12 that totally transforms this passage. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, and he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus. Seven centuries before Jesus would walk as incarnate man on this earth, Isaiah got a picture of the robe of Jesus coming into the temple. Now, the next time we see Jesus in a kingly robe is in the second passage that you had read this morning. Just think about it for a minute. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, another throne room. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple. Our text says purple cloak, but there is no noun. It just says they clothed him in purple. What the writer wants us to recognize is that this is another throne room scene. Remember, Jesus had been lashed so bad by now that the scarlet would have been coming through the purple because his back would have been bleeding for taking the punishment of these uh, evil people and taking the punishment of my evil sin. They clothed him in purple and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. It was the ultimate mockery. There was a phrase in the day, Ave, Caesar, victor and emperor. They were mimicking the very things that were being saying, saying about uh, Caesar. They're saying, you must be a king. Show yourself as a king now. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him to crucify him. Stripped him of his robe? Oh, how little did they know. We look at things, that's the text, there's a subtext. The earliest hymn we have from the church is from Philippians 2. We know that Jesus already gave up his robe, that very robe that Isaiah saw coming through the temple. Jesus took it off in heaven. You know what it says in Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took off his robe in all of his glory, and he took the form of a human servant, and being found in likeness as man, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Do you hear that? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's getting there through the cross. And as someone said Wednesday night as we study this passage, it wasn't angels who were around him when he was being lifted up. It was thieves that were around him. I wondered what, wonder what was going on with those angels. Remember, the angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They don't know the time of what God's doing. They only take their commands from God and have to be obedient. I wonder, remember Scripture talks about he could have called 12 legions of angels to rescue him from the cross? I wonder if they were sitting at the precipice of heaven. They're looking at the Father and they're saying, now, now, 
There's no way this could make sense that you're going to lift him up. But God was doing the greatest work. He was taking all that we deserved upon Jesus so that we could live forever. The robe that was coming down through the temple was that mock robe that Jesus would wear as he's being lifted up. Behold your Jesus. Behold him. Behold him. It will change everything. Behold him.